You are Locked On Nets, your daily Brooklyn Nets podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. And welcome into a Friday night edition of the Locked On Nets podcast. I am your host, Gavin Shaw. I spent four years covering the Phoenix Suns, who tonight have Stefan Marbury, Sean Marion, and Amari Stoudermeyer, a great Jew in sports in the building. Um, so after four years of that, I moved back to my native New York to uh, report on the Brooklyn Nets and give you guys uh, maybe not the most up-to-date analysis, but I would say the best, or at least the most comically charged, no, mm, I, my analysis of the Brooklyn Nets, and I am joined by the lifelong fan, Josh Bass. Uh, Josh, uh, you actually watched the whole Nets Kings game live last night, and I, I, I was saving it for this morning, and, and I got a text from you at like 12.45, um, just uh, up. tearing apart uh, our guy, D'Angelo Russell. Yeah, I mean... What was that, man? Listen, it was he was a disaster uh, at the end of the game, and I'm not happy right now because I had to stay up late, get in early at work this morning, and also have to watch another 15 minutes of overtime, which was just a disaster. Yeah. And all right, let's go to the end of the game because the Nets, uh, they tie it up. uh, Giant three from, I think, Damari Carroll hit it because Crab hit the one in overtime, right? Yeah, so Damari Carroll. Carroll. Yeah, Carroll hits a giant three, ties it up at 98. uh, They force a miss. uh, They get the ball back. Dinwiddie uh, goes to the rim with like six seconds left, picks up a foul on Buddy Heald, makes two free throws. And and I know like the announcers were like giving like kind of like a soft critique of it. And I I thought that was kind of like a little bit of like retroactive insight. Yeah, because I I think like though I'm always frustrated with guys like even even in that situation when you have a tie game, like it obviously doesn't look as good if you miss the shot. But I'm always frustrated with guys like waiting until like the very last second and then just getting off like a terrible like fadeaway. Like I love what Dinwiddie did. Like he saw an opportunity to get to the basket, which is really usually like essentially impossible in the closing seconds of a game. And, and he and he took it and got it. The the most important thing when you have the basketball in that situation is is to put it in the hoop because if, if you score, I mean I mean obviously the Kings could hit a three, but usually the worst case scenario is that the game goes in overtime. So I, I liked. Uh, Dinwiddie stayed of mind, and I, I like the fact that he was aggressive and didn't just wait for the final seconds because that's generally what teams do. So I, I thought that was a great play by him. And then De'Aaron yeah. Fox uh, comes back on a little like uh, dribble handoff with I think it was Costa Kufas, and, and he just uh, toasts um, Dinwiddie, who was probably a little bit too far out on him. But I get the emphasis to not give up a three, and Dinwiddie had his back to the basket, so he didn't know how much time was left. So he just figured Fox was going to throw it up. Fox goes right by him, shows off that explosive speed, gets to the rim. Puts up a floater, so a tough play, but, like, not I, – I don't know. Like, I, I'm not really sure, like, what the Nets could have done better there unless you want, like, someone to go over. But, again, it's not like Fox got a layup. He, like, he had to make a tough floater with a few yeah, seconds. Yeah, and, and, again, I think that it comes down to Dinwiddie going to the free throw line for two shots. Let's say he's an 80% free throw shooter. Uh, even you can give him 75% in clutch situations because he's more likely to miss. Yeah. Let's say that's 1.5 points in that possession because he's taking two free throws. The average possession for the Kings, the expected value, is going to be way less than that. So it honestly makes sense to go ahead. And Dinwiddie shouldn't have even gotten free throws on that play. I mean, the refs were terrible the whole night. I don't understand how they called it on the shot because it clearly looked to me like he was trying to dish it off to Jared Allen. wasn't even close to being in the motion of shooting. So I thought it should have been a side out. Yeah, I, I will say, though, the Nets were due for a bad call going their way in the closing minutes. Did, did you see the uh, 538 graphic that they put out where they essentially, like, 
categorize like all the incorrect calls in like the closing minutes of games on the season and the Nets like I don't think it was far and away but they led the NBA I think they had 28 bad calls against them in the final two minutes of games this year in close situations which was yeah, I, mean, I mean also they're in those situ- yeah. situations a lot because they're not bad enough for their games That's true. every night they're competitive but also they're not um, really going ahead by a lot but uh, the refs were terrible the entire game last night on both sides I thought they were giving unfair calls to both teams yeah I don't know I like I didn't totally notice it but I, I don't I don't think I watch out for that stuff quite as much as you do so I'll take your word for it and that again that's kind of been the situation for the Nets all year like I, I thought like the illegal screen on Jared Allen in overtime wasn't great even though I guess it like, yeah, like that I was guess, an illegal, definitely an illegal screen yeah I don't know it was like kind of like probably, a weak it was no, a weak call yeah. in that situation like I'm not sure I, I wouldn't call they it missed there. an illegal screen earlier I think like Willie Trill just fucking sh- I don't know if I'm allowed to curse on this podcast. But, I, I, I do it a lot. But so, Willie yeah. Trill just shoved Allen out of the way. It wasn't even like he was trying to set a legal screen and they didn't call it. That was in the final two minutes. But, you know, Allen's screen in overtime was illegal because Russell started going early enough where Allen really wasn't set and in position to set a good screen. So the defender ended up just tripping over Allen's leg and it's a clear a clear call at that point. Right. And maybe, maybe expand on that a little bit, Josh, because like, it was something like I hadn't really noticed because before the podcast we were talking about Rush- Russell's issues um, with, with, as you described it, going too early on screens. And I, I thought you were talking about defense because that, that's where I really see the issue with him where he keeps dying. But, but you're saying that's an issue on offense too. What, what, are, what are you seeing there? Yeah, I, I'm just seeing that he doesn't really know how to set up his screens well. It doesn't wait for the, the big man to really get in position. It's like he sees them starting to head over instead of screen and he needs to go right away uh, trying to catch the defender off guard. But at the same time, if the, if the big man's going up to set a screen and – before he's even getting set, you're starting to move, and the defender's moving with you. It's going to be an illegal screen called every time, and he's not doing Jared Allen and, and the other big men on the team any favors by going way too early. Right, and, and I think this game was kind of a, a microcosm of a lot of the issues D'Angelo Russell um, has kind of been dealing with all year. Obviously, they were kind of uh, emphasizing this one because he ended up playing 38 minutes, which is, if, if not the most he's played this year, certainly up there, and like I guess like it would be another overtime game where he was even close to that um, minute total. But uh, Zach Lowe had it in his weekly uh, likes, dislikes, uh, Russell uh, fourth in the NBA in possessions that end with a shot, uh, with a shot, assist, or turnover. Um, and, and I think that's kind of, or at least I think that on a permanent basis, obviously, since he missed a bunch of games. That's kind of in line with what we've seen from him. And, and it, I, I thought it was kind of actually um, not rewarding, but it, it kind of reaffirmed what uh, we've been talking about with Russell, specifically what, what you've been saying the last few podcasts, Josh where Lowe mentioned uh, Russell's tendency to beat his defender and then slow up and kind of let him catch up. And obviously sometimes that pays off and it allows him to read the floor a little bit better and keep a guy on his hip and make a good pass. But more often than not, it seems like he's like passing up like potentially open shots to take tough like mid-range fadeaways. And, and not even that I noticed that um, that much this game, but I think that's kind of just emblematic of a lack of urgency in his game. And that was something that I think was, again, kind of a big theme in this one and obviously like at points the patience paid off he had 11 assists but he I, I really didn't think he got high quality shots because of that lack of patience and that's part of the reason he shot just 5 of 15 from the field yeah again no sense of urgency as you mentioned just not there was one play I think about 40 seconds left the Nets had gotten the ball um, and D'Angelo Russell slowed it down and they're down by one and he just completely wasted the two for one opportunity by putting the ball on his hip for 20 seconds I mean uh, I think including the overtime in the last two minutes of regulation Nets offense must have been 67% of the time just Russell standing with the ball outside the three-point line, not doing anything. Every yeah. time the guy gets double teamed, it's like he's just walking the ball around, no sense of urgency to find a pass or a cutter. He's just trying to dribble out of it and not playing team basketball whatsoever. 
Yeah, well, I think I think going back to that, it was um, I, the way you initially mentioned um, with Russell pulling the ball out. It, it was it, I'm pretty sure it was still just a one point game at that point. Uh, they were up 111, 110 with 105 left, and then uh, Bogdanovich scored, and then he wasted the two for one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And well, I I don't know. I kind of put that on like. Carroll a little bit too, and I, I don't really want to take shots at Carroll because I, I thought he played a great game and he was he was the reason it went to OT with his shooting both in the first quarter and in the fourth. But um, he he had Carroll had a three on two actually, and then he threw it instead of like continuing to push the ball forward. And I think if he had been really aggressive, they could have gotten the layup. He kicked it out to Russell, but at that point Russell like has to have like the clock awareness to just like either jack a shot or go like ideally like I think what Dinwiddie does in that situation is he goes to the basket and he either he misses something and gives Allen a chance at a putback or he gets fouled. Um, and instead, he, I mean, it's exactly what you said. He pulled it out, and that I think that decision um, essentially like sealed this one up for the Nets. Like, yeah. obviously, like give the, give the Kings credit for making like a bunch of shots in OT. Like, some of them were tougher than others, but but they hit shots. But I, I don't know that decision like really killed it for me. I, I don't want to like totally bury on Russell because he hit some he hit some really big threes, but there are obviously a lot of issues. Yeah, and Gavin, it's usually great to have a good pullout game, but in that situation, he really needs to, to take it to the basket and be and be decisive, because you can't waste time like that. Yeah, uh, no, good point, Josh. Can't, Antonio can't, can't, argue, can't argue with that. Three vasectomies. All right, uh, all of them failed. <laughs> all right, uh, with that, uh, we're going to take a quick commercial, and we'll be right back on the Locked On Nets podcast. Attention cancer victims, if you or a loved one lived, worked, or visited Lower Manhattan in the months after the 9-11 attacks and have been diagnosed with cancer, federal benefits and health care may be available. Attorney Eddie Markowitz has helped many families recover substantial benefits from the September 11th Victims Compensation Fund. The James Zidroga Health and Compensation Act has been extended, but time is limited. Attorney Markowitz is proud to serve as counsel to the Zidroga family. Let him help you too. These benefits are not just for rescue workers, but to anyone who qualifies. The fund covers many cancers, including prostate, skin, lung, and breast. Please call 1-800-LAW-HELP. That's 1-800-LAW-HELP to see if you qualify. All right. Yeah, so we, we, we talked through uh, D'Angelo Russell's uh, struggles. And this like another one. Uh, that was uh, kind of uh, tough to stomach for me because I, I love the way the Nets uh, played in getting their uh, first win in forever over the Bulls. I thought, even though I, I know we both had our, our issues in that game, I thought they generally played really well against the Cavs. And I was like expecting, like again, with Hollis Jefferson and Levert back, I was expecting that energy and inspired effort to continue and, and to me like I mean like not that like there were like a number of guys like particularly Carol and uh, Jared Allen who had really really good games but I, I was just expecting that energy to kind of carry over and for them to like comfortably cruise by the Kings and and this just felt like so many of the games during the the massive losing streak uh they've just went through and really are, are still kind of going through 15 to 17 uh now that they've dropped I, I just I just thought the energy from the last two games would continue, and it felt a lot more like the Pacers game they played like two weeks ago, where like they had every chance to win it, and it just really seemed like they didn't really want it that much. I didn't think the energy was bad. I just think uh, there were a few key players that were just terrible. D'Angelo Russell, we've already spoken about him enough, but Lavert was god awful in this game. Uh, I think it was three of eleven from the field. Just yeah. The shots he was taking were just complete chuck fadeaway jumpers. wasn't looking to get into the offense at all. And I think Atkinson did a pretty poor job of coaching. I mean, the first half, he he has a series where he lets Levert play point guard and Russell and Dinwiddie are on the bench. I mean, those two guys should be staggered as much as hate as I give Russell. He does have good court vision. And he, they're setting Levert out there to be the point guard by himself with really no other creators in the lineup. 
And I think they got outscored by six or eight in just a couple of minutes. So that lineup was a disaster. And then Atkinson, they start the fourth quarter extremely slowly. They don't score for the first three minutes. The Nets are, the lead's gradually chipping away. Um, and everyone in the world knows that they should take a timeout. And he waits until the Kings take the lead before finally taking a timeout. And then sticks with the same lineup back out there with D'Angelo Russell, who wasn't getting into the sets at all uh, at point guard. And then he turns it over the first play back. And then he has Dinwiddie pop off the bench. But it's another two minutes before Dinwiddie gets subbed into the game. I mean, if you're calling a timeout and you're going to put him uh, into the scores table one play after, you might as well just put him in there. Yeah. And I'm also, I'm with that. And like, I'm also like, I'm, I'm kind of torn on like how much they're playing D'Lo because I, I kind of, and I, I get like, I, I think this was like something of a reward for how well he played against Cleveland because he really did play. Like, I mean, there were some mistakes like at the very end, but before that he, it was like kind of pitching a perfect game, at least relative to his uh, skill level. But um, I, I like, I, I don't, I don't love that he's playing like the most minutes on the team. Like I think like even, even though Dinwiddie continues kind of a, a, an elongated uh, shooting slump that's really been going on for like two months now. So maybe it's just who he is as a player. But um, I, I, to me, he's like the Nets are better when he's on the floor than when Russell's on the floor. And I think, I think the stats have backed that up all season long. So I'd, I'd like to see him play a little bit more than Russell in that relationship. Well, and it's like, pretty similar. I mean, I think when Russell's only playing two minutes more, you can kind of uh, take that within the margin of error. No, that's fair. But I mean, I'd like, like, I mean, like I wouldn't like, I wouldn't want it to be that. Like I want like Dinwiddie to like average like five more minutes a game. And maybe that's just like this like desire to have both of them out there at the same time. But like, I, I don't know. I'd, I'd be interested to hear what you think on it. Like to me, those lineups, like, and again, like, I guess like it's definitely like it's worth trying them. But to me, like, it really hasn't clicked yet with Dinwiddie and Russell. Like, I feel like when the Nets have played well, it's been, like, when just one of those guys is on the court. And they've had moments with two of them, but it just it hasn't been consistent. I completely agree with you. And I think that these minutes are just kind of an awkward fit. And not to say it can't get better with time, but, I mean, at this point, Dinwiddie's just standing in the corner completely marginalized while Russell uh, does whatever he, whatever in God's name uh, he does over on the court kind of running the show. Yeah, um, and I'd like to see Dinwiddie get a little bit more involved, and maybe D'Lo can have some spot up opportunities. Well, yeah, because it would have. No, that that's a good point. And again, like that's kind of the structure that, like, at least you and I assume the Nets would have at the beginning of the season when Jeremy Lin was still healthy and Dinwiddie was a little bit of an afterthought, but just those two guys playing off each other. But I, I, I don't know because I mean, like, again, like, and you you've said this time and time again, like D'Lo hasn't proven to be a great shooter, and he's kind of, I, I don't know. I don't know if it's unwillingness, but maybe just a discomfort off the basketball for both of those guys. But like neither one of them, like, like I ideally, like, I mean, like not that the two of them could be described as stars, but they're the Nets probably, at least on paper, like the Nets two best players. Like ideally they should be complimenting each other and making each other better. And it just seems like when they're on the court, like neither one is a hundred percent effective. And at least recently, like the scale of like handling the ball. And I don't know if this is Atkinson's decision or just the way it works out has kind of tilted, I think a little bit more in, in Delo's favor, which, and obviously it, it shifts game to game and possession to possession. But like, I like, if you're going to favor one of those guys, like I'd rather like Dinwiddie be the one with the ball in his hands. And like, if you're Atkinson, like I really do think, and to his credit, like he does call these plays sometimes, but I think you really have to design sets that force the two of them to play off each other. And like, I know that's easier said than done when it, when it's two point guards and you can't really have one screen for the other. So you have to kind of get creative, but like whether it's one driving and like another guy coming off the screen on the other side, I think you have to force them to interact because I think that's the way you take advantage of the fact that both are, are pretty good at getting into the lane. No, I, I completely agree with you. And I think that I was honestly shocked that Atkinson ran the last play for D'Lo 
considering a he's 29% on threes this season and B I legitimately thought he could have been shaving points in overtime. <laughs> yeah. You, you did. You did suggest that to me before the podcast and you were like, like crab Dinwiddie. Come on. These, yeah. Crab was on fire from, I mean, I think he was like six of 13 on threes. Yeah. I, I just want to make it clear to people who are listening. Like Josh, I, I don't think Josh is telling a joke right now. Like he was, he is legitimately concerned that D'Angelo Russell it was is, is, is some bad people. Yeah. He, no, it's certainly frustrating. It was just bizarre the way he was making the same mistake over and over again. Yeah, no, it was certainly weird. Okay, uh, we're going to take one final break, and then we will wrap up this edition of the Locked on Nets podcast. All right, uh, we are back. Uh, Final thoughts on this one. Uh, Yeah, love love the way uh, Alec Crabb shot it from three-point range. Didn't really love... Uh, the way he shot it from two, but uh, I got I got that uh, ever exciting text from you when I wasn't watching the game and you were in the first quarter. Uh, we're crab people now, so I was I was I was into that three threes in the first quarter, two of them like a few feet behind the line. Uh, continue to love the confidence that he's shooting the ball with, and I, I thought it was pretty cool in OT when like Buddy Heald hit the three and Crab just came right back and answered yeah. like almost like he took it personally a little bit. Like I mean, to me again, that's like I, I keep saying it, but it it's, remains exciting. Like that just kind of represents his uh, newfound confidence. Yeah, who would you rather have for the rest of this season, Buddy Heald or Alan Crabb? This season, uh, Crabb for their career. I, I don't. I think I think Heald has a little bit more potential to score. I think Crabb's always going to be a better defender because of his size. But that, that's a more interesting uh, question. And, and you know, I'm biased towards Buddy Heald, so that yeah. And I and I don't and I haven't really shown off a lot of Crabb love this year. So that probably is indicative of Crabb being a better player. Also, Bogdan Bogdanovich is really good. Yeah, people people seem to love him. Earlier in the season, I was like a little annoyed just because like people were like trashing the Suns for trading him and I was, I was like the guy's like averaging nine points a game on like 38 percent shooting so maybe we could like hold off a little bit and like say they didn't make like a terrible mistake but yeah he's increasingly looking like a very real and like a very good player so uh my my son's loving heart uh, hurts a little bit that they uh they didn't take him and they also gave up uh, the pick that became Scalabissier who was also fairly solid in this game Excuse on that I, well I'm interested to uh, I think there's a few more uh, Nets things I want to talk about before we finish up, but I, I'm interested to kind of hear your perspective on the Kings because obviously, like everyone treats them, and I think rightfully so, as like the biggest like disaster of a franchise in the NBA. And like I'm I'm torn on it because I, I really think there is like some really good young talent on this team, and and I guess, but like De'Aaron Fox is like the only one to me, and like to a lesser degree, Bogdanovich and Heald has like a like a definite like good NBA guy. But like I, I think Fox is going to be really really good. Yeah, I mean, when you pick in the lottery that many years in a row, you're going to be bound to have some talent. But they still have drafted pretty badly. I mean, uh, Papa G, they just released a year after <laughs> taking him fun. in the lottery. Yeah. Malachi Richardson, they traded. Uh, Doofenshmirtz, what's his? Justin Jackson. <laughs> uh, he's nothing special. That, that, was, that, was, that was your best joke, I Harry think, ever on this podcast. <laughs> yeah. Who knows if Harry Giles will ever play. You should honestly make the 100-minute yeah. Harry Giles bet. Uh, with uh, Josh Lloyd that you did for Joe Harris. Yeah, yeah. We're about 100 minutes for Harry Giles. That'd be good. You know, you know what's funny? Was I, I did just, like, look him up. Because I, I was kind of curious because I, I saw him. Um, he, he was in, like, a suit jacket and, like, a T-shirt, which is, like, a new NBA style thing uh, in, in the huddle um, on one of their final possessions. And, like, I couldn't think of who it was. And, like, I spent, like, two minutes on it. I'm like, I'm like oh, that's, uh, that's Harry Giles. And then I looked it up, and there's, like, this whole, like, Bleacher Report article about, like, everyone on the Kings, like, raving about how, like, incredible – he is in practice, and apparently he's, like, this great, like, passer, which, like, he never really, I think he averaged, like, two or three assists a game in college, which, so he never really showed that off, so it, it's pretty interesting, like, like, he's really hyped, and you, yeah. my, my favorite quote um, from the article is Bogdanovich saying, quote, like, I think he's a better version of Draymond Green. 
Doesn't he look like Harrison Barnes also? And he kind of looks like uh, a little bit like Karis Car- Levert is more of a rounded face, but like he really looks like Harrison Barnes. That's a good call. When I first saw him, I was like, I was like, why is, why did like Levert like switch huddles? And then like I looked, and I'm like, oh no, he's taller and like he's fine. It's like when Trevor Booker yeah. got in the opposing team's huddle this year. Yeah, that's good. And LeBron, like Ty Lue was like, what are you doing here? Yeah, <laughs> and Trevor, it's me, Trevor. Uh, they didn't take kindly to that, but yeah, I don't know. I, I guess I guess my core point is there's like. There's a little bit of uh, of, of Kings uh, could be, could be decent in a few years if Giles is like I'm no, not 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 no, better no. not better Draymond Green but if Giles is like is something decent they have Caboclo who I think I think is only one year away now Willie Trill Willie, Willie Trill's like he's, he's he was a beast he's solid. in the first yeah. quarter or first half and then he he just kind of realized that he's actually Willie Trill I'm I'm shoot I'm Willie Trill yeah no but I, I don't know beasting Allen in the first yeah. quarter I think they have some good role guys like let's like if they could like if they but like they just top line it's like the Nets they still need top line guys to slot in above them yeah no 100 but I'm just saying like if they if they got like if they just like lucked into like Doncic or someone then like like I think like you could have like the core of like a pretty good, like like fo- like if my core is like Fox Bogdanovich Donkic, Giles, Kali Stein. Obviously, Giles is like a mystery, but I don't know. Doofenshmirtz and Doofenshmirtz and Heald off the bench. That's and and four and forty six year old Vince Carter. By the time they make the playoffs, also I couldn't believe Costa Kufis was was playing for this. I was kind of frustrated because like decent. Well, yeah, because I I didn't like blame Allen for playing off of him, but it got it got kind of frustrating when he kept like he kept driving in for floaters and getting assists just because Allen wasn't guarding him at all. Yeah, It it was a little annoying. But uh, speaking of Allen, that I like, I got so excited for the dunk he had in the first half, where he just ran the floor, caught it uh, like just inside the three point line, took one dribble and flushed it. Like it was like a little bit like Giannis light. Like and obviously, like I know he's never going to be like that kind of ball handler, but just just like the athletic ability to get from like just inside the three point line into a dunk in like one dribble was it, it was kind of cool to see. I think my favorite play on his end was when De'Aaron Fox drove. Oh, the block, the yeah. And he just had a sick block, and the Nets were able to recover it. It's perfect timing on his part. Yeah, that was I wrote that down. That was the um that was the Kings final possession, uh, second to last possession of regulation, like when they were trying to take the lead, and they played it so well because like you kind of knew like, and again that's why like I love Fox, like he just like I mean not that Dinwiddie's like the best on ball defender in the NBA, but you just kind of knew Fox was going to speed by him, and Allen just like you were you were right, the timing was just absolutely flawless like he knew exactly when to go there and like he he came like late enough that fox didn't have time to draw a foul like he was already going up and like and like that kind of quickness in the lane like that that more than anything else is what is going to make him like a really really quality defender uh i would say going down the road all right uh that's like that's about everything i had on this one uh hollis jefferson cunningham not playing super well harris uh three of five from three point range cunningham was decent actually really i don't i mean i guess i guess he just like yeah, he was. I guess he finished. He had a three. Well. He had a nice and one. The layup was really good. I don't know. He just like missed some shots inside. Early. Like I thought this was like his first game, where like there were moments where he's out there where I thought he was a little bit of a liability. When I like this is like more like a reflection on how well I think he's been playing because like I, I think like he's just like consistently been like the anti AC and when he's like been like an asset to some degree or another every time he's out there. And this game, I thought there were stretches where he wasn't. But yeah, he wasn't. He wasn't terrible by any means. I don't know. I'm kind of grasping for straws. Anyway, I just want to finish up with this cool stat on uh, Harris that anyone who watched the game already heard. Uh, he's he's in the top five in the NBA in three-point shooting on the road, 45% on the field. And that is because since January 1st, Josh, he's shooting 64% from three-point range, maybe 65 after last night. But that that's pretty ridiculous. Well, it would have been down. After oh, he would have been down. Yeah, he went three of five. Three yeah, five. I, I, I saw three of five, and I'm like, oh, it had to go up, but it's so insanely high. All right, maybe 63. But yeah, that, that's pretty. That, that's a fun stat. And obviously, small sample size theater, but pretty cool. 
All right, uh, that, that's about all I had. Unless Josh, dude, are there any like I, I thought I, I'd like the idea of like occasionally ending podcasts with this. Any any like general NBA thoughts you have that you want to get out there? I'm kind of putting you on the spot, so it's okay if you don't have anything. We can save it for next time. But you're going away to Costa Rica. You're gonna miss a few pods, so I wanted to give you an opportunity to sign off with something. Yeah, uh, no, it's a good. Thank you for putting me on the spot like this. Yeah, of course. Uh, yeah, that's what I do. I guess let's talk a minute about J.R. Smith throwing the soup in. Yeah, that's pretty good. At the Cavs assistant. <laughs> Oh man, that's great. Uh, yeah, at, at, at Dante Jones too, his, his former teammate. That was Demon Jones, I thought. Uh, are you sure? Oh, maybe. Yeah, I no, no, I think I'm ninety percent sure he was on the team. I'm ninety percent sure it's Demon Jones. Okay, let's let's settle this live. I'm right. You're right. Oh, yeah, that's disappointing. All right, so Gavin owes uh, two drinks. You all heard. No, in seriousness, J.R. Smith is just a completely ridiculous. Uh, like I, I can't believe that. This person has been in the NBA for like probably 12, 13 years at this point. Yeah. Um, he does something like throwing soup in his coach's face. Just great for, for humor. Oh, wait, Josh. Uh, sorry to interrupt you, but Dante Jones spent all of last season as a player on the Cleveland Cavaliers. Yeah, I know, but he wasn't the assistant coach that he threw the soup at. Oh, it was Damon Jones who he threw. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. Clearly yeah, I'll buy you those drinks. Okay, go ahead. Yeah, no, it's pretty incredible that he's lasted as long as he has. And, it, like, I think people forget that, like, uh, when the Cavs were trading for Amon Shumpert in LeBron's first year back, and J.R. Smith was absolutely just, like, uh, the Knicks said, we'll give you Shumpert if you take on J.R. Smith's contract. And it's ended up being the total opposite, where Smith has been the valuable guy, and Shumpert has, has been a guy they've wanted to get off their he's team. He's on the Kings now. I saw him in the huddle yesterday. I was kind of shook because I forgot they had traded for him. Oh, yeah, I forgot. I, I forgot, too, that he's he part of his the team. hair. Well, he did a long time ago, I guess. Yeah. And uh, he cuts hair and umbilical cords. Apparently, those are those are his that's his specialty. Yeah, that's what he does with uh, with headphones. Yeah, still an incredible story. But uh, anyways, yeah. So uh, shout out to Jr. still being in the league. Shout out to him for still uh, throwing soup. But like, I'm wondering, like, if that's like hot soup, like you have to suspend him more than one game. So maybe it was like yeah, was it like a pho or like or a, a gazpacho? Could have been a gazpacho, maybe. Yeah, we need to find this out. That's not that bad. Yeah, I'd, I'd like to know the type of. I hope someone. Someone asked him, and I love like I love that Brian Windhorst got that story. Like that seems like the perfectly like appropriate story for Brian Windhorst to break. Like J.R. Smith throws clam chowder at assistant yeah. coach Windhorst. Windhorst. <laughs> My a, column, such a weird guy. <laughs> Will soup break up the calves? My column. Yeah, he's gonna yeah. Have a, a ranking of all of LeBron's favorite soups. I, I told you. I remember telling you a few months ago. I think you loved it at the time, but I still, I still love that. Like Windhorst, like shut off all the lights in his house on Halloween. <laughs> <laughs> no one, no one would come by. Do you remember the, the the graphic on ESPN when he was uh, calling in and just like him whizzing by on? Yeah. <laughs> and when they gave him, I think I forget who it was. I think they gave him like uh, Ray Allen's tagline, but it said like twelve year NBA vet. Yeah. Twelve year NBA shooting guard. <laughs> so funny. Oh my god. I, I love Windhorst. Jonah Hill. I, I call him I call him the Tonus of NBA reporting. All right, yeah, you uh, get that joke. You're a real one. <laughs> yeah, for sure. All right, uh, thanks for tuning in. Uh, we really appreciate you uh, taking the time. Uh, I'll be back either Sunday or Monday with someone. Uh, Josh, let me uh, formally on uh, this platform. Uh, hope you, uh, wish you uh, a good time in Costa Rica and a safe trip back and forth. And uh, we'll be back Sunday or Monday. Until then, be well. Peace out. <laughs>